but we will see. Oh, thank you very much. So if you're a kiddo, who's got nursery today? I don't remember. Oh, wow, y'all are just Johnny on the spot for all of it, aren't you? <laughs> so let me actually start off on that. Um, so this is not on the sermon. This is on one of the things I love about our church, which is that uh, if you want to do something, you can jump in. You don't have to, okay? Uh, we've had some people that have come, and to be honest, they were burned out from church. Where uh, if I don't know if this has been your experience or not, but sometimes what happens is you volunteer at a church, and then you get volunteered for everything. That is not the goal here, okay? One, as a church, we purposely try not to do a lot of things, um, so, one, that's not going to happen. Like, literally, we do small group, we do potluck, we worship. Um, the goal is for us to live together, not to just spend all our time doing church stuff. But if you're like, I would like to do something also, the nursery is a great way to do that. Um, you need a background check, and if, for those of you who do it, if you're like, hey, don't I need to have my background check done again? It's updated every year. The company we do it through is kind of weird. Um, we don't get charged for it again unless there's a new notification. So unless you do something bad, we don't get charged for it. It's redone. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that of all the, uh, the background checks we've had, we have not been charged again. So good job. Way not to do something. Um, so I need to do a background check on you. If you're interested, we have different people doing it each week. We have a schedule, and then we have people that fill in, such as, so Jason and Pam uh, are kind of the fill-ins right now. We're always looking for more people. But there are other ways if you want to do something. Uh, so Elizabeth and then Adam and Charlie came in today, and we have created a checklist that is improving literally on setup. So like the back table, there is literally, the, the mindset is, think pilot going through a checklist on how to do it. And Elizabeth, it helped you today, but you were already like, this can change and we can make this better. So next week, it'll be even closer to, you should be able to walk in here and just be able to do that. There are photos, there are diagrams, sound stuff and such. If you're looking to be involved, you can do it. You don't have to be. If you just feel the need just to come in here, and truthfully, you're like, I don't even want to take down chairs and such. That's fine. You never have to do anything. Uh, you're always welcome. But if you're like, I'd like to do something, we can give you something as complicated or as simple as you want. Does that make sense? Perfect. Then if you would, join with me. Charlie is going to operate the Scripture behind me. And I actually think this may be where the problem happens, is uh, they operate the Scripture and then the clicker stops working. I don't know that, but we'll see. But I'm going to be reading from the Gospel according to John, the 11th chapter, verses 38 through the end of the text, which I think is 57 if I remember right. It is. This is what the word of the Lord says. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad order, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. 
Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There were many Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Oh, excuse me. Therefore, many Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but for also, uh, all, excuse me, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about, in, about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival? Is he coming? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might have him arrested. Now, if you look at um, discussions, we love villains. Let's try this. There we go. We love villains. But we, we are kind of picky about the villains that we like. Our favorite villains are not the ones that are just point blank evil all the time. There's a saying in literature that is true in movies too. And that is that the best villains think they're heroes. So think about some, okay? You've got all the, the comic book movies, but you have others. So like even the show, uh, what I just showed you with The Wizard of Oz. Well, if you watch... Wicked, the musical, which I would highly encourage you to watch, especially if your spouse really likes Wicked, the musical, and keeps on saying, I'm so excited about you seeing Wicked, the musical. Eric, you really should go watch Wicked, the musical. I, I know that you would really, really love it. Yeah, Eric's all about musicals, just in case you didn't know that. And TV shows. He loves them. Um, but if you watch the musical, you actually find out that the story is more complicated than it is in the movie. They started to add dimensions. If you watch our, our current villains and such, you, you see people that think they're heroes, such as Magneto. I love Magneto. 
But Magneto is operating off the fact that he thinks he's a hero. I think I just heard somebody over here just go, oh, because you don't even know who this is. It's okay. I've got you covered. There are other villains that think they're heroes too that you may know, such as, anybody know who this is? Some, it's Kathy Bates, but it's Annie Wilkes. So Kathy Bates is the actress, but she is playing Annie Wilkes, who is one of the best villains, in my opinion, out there. Uh, she is the villain from the movie or the book or the TV show, Misery. And she's such a great villain because she actually thinks she is saving the author from himself. He's writing this terrible book, and she decides she's going to save him from himself. And how does she save him from himself? Yes. She hobbles him. This is after the fact. Matter of fact, I was going to show uh, the scene where he's hobbled, and I was like, nope, that will distract everybody from the rest of the sermon. We'll all be disturbed. I was just going to show the video. I've already gotten one thumbs up and one head shake saying that was the right choice. Uh, Natalie's like, no, apparently you should have shown it. Okay, so guys, she's wonderful because she thinks she's the hero. All right, I'm going to go back to comic books for just a second, so please forgive me. Thanos in the Marvel uh, series, is such a good villain because he actually thinks he is saving all of creation. It's the way that he operates for that. And you know what? My slides are in the wrong order, apparently. So I can't remember who I have next. There we go. Dolores Umbridge from, from here. Uh, this should make you happy. There we go. Janie's in the back now, isn't she? Oh. Crud. I, when, I, I remember now when I put it in, I was like, it's going to make the Holty kids happy. She's such a great villain because she actually thinks she is putting the school back in order and she's saving it from herself. The best villains in literature and in TV shows and in movies and all other forms of stories think they're actually the heroes. And the story we just read... Anytime you read the New Testament, it's always pointing towards Jesus. Yes, the story's about other people too, but it's always pointing towards Jesus. It's how other people react. And in the story we just read, well, it's very easy for us to pick on and say, oh, those Pharisee leaders, those Sadducee leaders, uh, the, the Sanhedrin leaders, the Herodian leaders, they're all terrible. But the reality is they all thought they were saving Israel. So here's the passage I really want us to focus on. They said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas also said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, our heroes here, or excuse me, our villains here, think they are saving all of Israel. They view what Jesus is saying, and more importantly, what he is doing that is encouraging people to listen to him, as being dangerous to Israel, and dangerous for a very specific reason. The Roman people, they knew how to deal with threats. And they dealt with threats with one way. And that was they sent their military in to take over people. It's what they were really good at. And they've done it with Israel multiple times. They're going to do it in the near future. 
This is 80, 30, 30 to 33 that we're dealing with. In 80, 70, Rome is going to come and just decimate the temple. They're going to destroy it. So the reason we have a wailing wall now, which many of you will be familiar with, is that is the foundation of the temple. It's all that was left after AD 70 when the Romans came in. The Romans said they have caused enough trouble because of their God. They have caused enough trouble because they will not worship Caesar. They have caused enough trouble because they are fighting for freedom that we are going to come in and there will not be a rock standing from the temple. It's how Rome dealt with, with, uh, with issues. And they knew, the, the, the Jewish leaders there, they knew that what Jesus was preaching was counter enough, not only to what they thought, but to also what the Romans thought, that they were going to view all of Israel as troublemakers. Now we know what the ancient Near Eastern Roman authorities thought of Christians. They thought they were four things. We're going to go through this list. Some of you have heard this multiple times before. They thought they were cannibals. Anybody want to take a wild guess why they thought Christians were cannibals? Lord, I'm sorry, what? Yes, Lord's Supper. They heard rumors about the Lord's Supper, and we know that there were rumors thought that babies were cooked into the bread that the Lord's Supper was made from. I know, it's repulsive, but think about what we do. With people you don't know, you start spreading rumors about them. Not you, but that's what happens in societies. Those other people are different from us, and they do things like this. Think of some of the horrendous things that are said about ethnic restaurants and the food that's in that. Okay, we're so different from the ancient Near Easterners. No, it makes sense that they would say, they cook babies in the bread. They thought they were cannibals. Here's another one. They thought they were incestuous. Now, if you were raised in the South and you ever went to a church, you would know this instantly. This is not as much of a northern thing, but why do you think they thought that Christians were... Does everybody know what the term incestuous means? My microphone, by the way, keeps on falling off. I I saw a couple of head shakes. For those of you who don't know, it's it's something that happens in Wisconsin Rapids. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) The Strongs are not here. Um, So it's when brothers and sisters decide that they're going to be husbands and wives. Anybody want to take a wild guess why they thought early Christians were incestuous? Yes. And when, when I was a pastor in Baton Rouge, people insisted on calling me by a title, but the title was not Pastor Robert or, or what I would prefer, Shepherd Bob. It was Brother Robert. Everybody called me Brother Robert. Brother Robert, how are you doing? In certain churches... Uh, what would happen is Pam would also be given a title and it would be Brother Robert and Sister Pam. The Romans heard that and they literally thought these Christians are intermarrying. These Christians have brothers and sisters marrying with one another. That was not the only thing. The other thing they were thought of uh, was that they were considered to be atheistic. Now that one's going to seem weird. But the reason that they were thought to be atheistic is because Romans were really good at allowing people to have their gods. So I'm just going to, I'm going to say, let's say the Reeves have their own God and Jason has his own God and Elizabeth and Terrence have her, their own God and the Glazes have their own God. We just go around and every family dynamic here has their own God. The Romans would say, Reeves, you can worship your God as long as you worship Caesar too. As a matter of fact, 
If you give us an image of your God, we will put it in the pantheon, the room of gods. And Jason, you can worship your God as long as you worship Caesar too. And if you give us an image of the God, we'll put it along with the Reeves God in the pantheon. And Terrence and Elizabeth, if you do that, we'll put it in. They were really good at that. And there were two people groups that said, we can't give you an image of our God because our God is not just a God among the gods. He is the God. And we can't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord or Yahweh is Lord. And because of the fact that they were not able to give the Romans a visible God, they were often considered to be atheistic. Matter of fact, we have an example of one martyr who was brought to the Colosseum where Christians were about to be killed for the entertainment of the Roman crowds. And he was an old, old man. And the, the authorities said to him, shout out, kill the atheist and we'll let you go. Because they looked at the Christians and they said, they're atheists. If you want to know, his response was, the Lord has never betrayed me. Why would I betray him? Early Christians were thought to be atheistic. But to be completely honest, these three things here, as repulsive as they were considered by, by the, uh, the Roman culture, they were not the main reason that Christians were persecuted. The last reason is the main reason they were persecuted. They were considered to be traitors. <laughs> the reason they were considered to be traitors is because to be a good Roman citizen, you needed to burn incense once a year to an image of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Christians would pay their taxes. Christians would do their, their Roman uh, responsibilities. They did everything they were supposed to do. But the one thing they could not do was burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And they were considered traitorous for that. Now, you could go back and say, oh, they're so different from us. But think of the things that we will look at people and say, oh, you're not a good American because you don't do that, even though the American Constitution protects it. This is why Christians were killed. Because all of this, but particularly this right here, was considered a threat to the Roman way of life. This was considered such a threat to the Roman way of life that they would send in their military to destroy nations because that nation would not bow the knee to Caesar. Do you understand why the, the Jewish leadership at the time, why the Sanhedrin at the time, looked at what Jesus was saying and they were saying, this is going to not only get us all killed, but it is going to destroy our nation. They were right. The way of Jesus was going to change Rome. One of my favorite examples is that gladiatorial fights continued in Rome until about 250 A.D. They were one of the main forms of entertainment. And a young Christian was captured, excuse me, went there to watch the gladiatorial fights. And as he saw men and beasts and men and men fighting with one another, he ran into the middle of the field and started shouting, in the name of Christ, quit. Tradition says that the crowd began to shout, run him through, run him through. And the gladi gladiators, who were 
there for the entertainment of people, ran him through. The whole time he was shouting, for the name of Christ, stop. Tradition says that that they stopped instantly after that. The reality is they didn't stop instantly after that. It spread out other places. But while it didn't stop instantly, it was the way of Christ that began to change the culture such that Rome's main form of entertainment became something that was repulsive. The way of Jesus was going to change the values of Rome, was going to change what was important, how you were supposed to live, not just of Rome, but of all of the ancient Near East. And the Jewish leaders saw what, what Jesus had done, and they realized how dangerous it was. What did you think about it? Their response to hearing that he raised somebody from the dead was, the Romans are going to kill us. Bless you. Bless you. I mean, that's not your normal response to, oh my gosh, he, he raised the dead. But what they were worried about was, he raised the dead, people are now going to start believing him. And believing Jesus changes everything. It changes the way we begin to value things and the way we begin to respond to things. One of my favorite examples of this is from Acts 17. Acts 17 says the following. Whoops, I'll come back to that. It describes the disciples as these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. It's one of the very few times in my life that you will hear me say I prefer the King James Version of this because the King James Version describes that this way. It says this. Just do it, Charlie. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. It's this part, turning the world upside down. Because if you think about what Jesus says is valuable, what he says this is the way life is supposed to be, it is turned upside down. I'm going to give you one example that we've talked about a few times the past few weeks. Um, would you hit the next slide, please? And it's called Household Codes. This is, oh no, actually, go to the one that's the image of the dog. Can you do that? The image of a, of a dog. Do you see it? Go hit, there we go. Thank you. So I just brought this up here because if you have a pet, you know that your pet begins to shape how things happen in your life. And I just like this because it's, it's basically saying, hey, to any guest who comes here, we like you, but they chose me. Yesterday, um, I had a few people over to the house uh, because there's a group of people that uh, like playing role-playing games, and I am role-playing game adjacent, if that makes any sense. Like, I wouldn't do it on my own, but I like being with other people when they do it, and so we join it. If you're not familiar with role-playing games, D&D, Dungeons & Dragons, is a type of role-playing game. It's a game called Pathfinders. And so there were six people that came over to the house, and uh, we played pathfinders and we had the table set up and uh, they were telling stories about now you're going into a swamp and there's a goblin over here and we were working through all of this and we have a puppy now lucy is getting well technically her name is queen lucy the valiant but lucy is getting so much better she's still a puppy but she's getting much better 
She con- she's calm when Pam and I are in the ha- enter the house. She doesn't freak out uh, when, when new things are going on, except for when guests come over to the house. And when guests come over to the house, she goes back into puppy mode and she pees everywhere and, and she jumps all over everybody. But she's getting a little better. I slowly introduced her to everybody yesterday. She got pretty good. I took her outside, and Clancy, who's not here right now, he showed up because he, he wasn't going to play, but he, he needed to run about seven miles yesterday, so he ran to our house, and Katie was going to pick him up. And as I was letting Lucy back in, Clancy came in the front door, and Lucy's mind kicked to, oh my gosh, there's new people. Whereupon, she started running around the house, I had left my chair open while I went to let her, or not open, I had pulled it back from the table. She ran and jumped on my chair and then on top of the table where the role-playing game was, began shaking her tail, spreading stuff everywhere. And I've already said what she um, tends to do when she gets excited. And she peed right in the middle of the game. No, we, we were in a swamp, <laughs> and the good news is, to be honest, she peed on a, a laminated board place that was easy to wipe up, so it worked out really well. But this is our house. She's our dog. I don't expect you to be happy with anybody peeing on you, but I expect you not to be really upset if weird stuff happens because we have a dog. You have rules that are set up because of your house. Think of, of the rules that you know because of your pets. That, oh, nobody opens this door. That other people have to learn. There are household codes in the New Testament that we read, and truthfully, when we read them, we think they're backward. Husbands and wives, submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But when the ancient Near Eastern Jews and the, the Romans read them, they would have thought this is the most revolutionary and radical thing they have ever experienced. Because the only thing that mattered in the ancient Near East and specifically in Rome was status and power. And Jesus flipped that. The first will be last and the last will be first. Children are now valuable. To give you an idea of how unvaluable children were, in Roman culture, the father had, had the right to say if a child was kept or not at its birth. You could just expose the child. This is why the ancient or Eastern uh, Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, they heard what Jesus was saying. He raised from somebody from the dead and they said, everybody's going to believe him and Rome is going to come and destroy us because they recognized the way of Jesus for the threat to the status quo that it is. Because the way of Jesus is a threat to the status quo. It is a threat to those who say, you need to sit down and shut up over here. And our villains recognized it for what it was, and they thought, we're going to save Israel. It's so easy for us to read it 
back as though they were idiots. They weren't. It's so easy for us to read it back as though they were evil. They weren't. They just recognized that Jesus' way is different than our current way, and it's going to cause trouble. And the reality is, it is still different from our current way. And when we really follow Jesus, it causes trouble. It leads us to leave with, uh, live with different values. It leads us to, to say, we're going to do this instead. We're going to listen to those who, who are not normally listened to. We're going to lift up those who are normally put aside. We're going to pay attention to those who are usually ignored. And it doesn't mean we're always going to agree with them. But it does mean we're always going to treat them as though they bear the image of God because we recognize that they do. Now, I, I skipped over two slides. One of those is a slide from a, a gentleman named Pliny the Elder, who was a, a governor in the region. And he, when he dealt with Christians, he specifically lent, uh, sent a letter to the emperor Trajan because he's like, I don't know what to do with them. So would you, could you go back to that letter, please? This is a portion from it. Thank you very much, Charlie. Pliny wrote the following. He said, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who pers persisted, I ordered executed, for I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible, inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Pliny, specifically, these were two women deaconesses. They were slaves. You want to talk about disrupting the Roman culture. He interviewed slaves, and the reason he mentions punishment is in Roman thought, the only way you got the truth out of a slave was to torture them. That's how inhuman they were thought to be. You must torture a slave for a slave to tell the truth. And he tortured two of our sisters in Christ to find out what Christians were like. It's one of the best sources we have from a non-Christian concerning what early Christian worship was like. I would encourage you to look up the letter from Pliny the Younger. There's also Pliny the Elder, but this is from Pliny the Younger, and read it. He talks about it. He refers to them as the followers of Christos. He doesn't even know Christianity well enough yet to know that it is uh, the followers of Christ. It is instead the followers of Christos. But this is the term that gets me, and this is very Roman. He kills them. Oops, I'm sorry. It works the time I need it not to. There we go. He kills them because of the fact partially the, the nature of their creed, but mainly because of their stubbornness and the inflexible obstinacy. Rome could put up with a lot of things. They would let you worship any god you wanted as long as you worship Caesar. They would let you eat any food you wanted as long as you worship Caesar. They cared about three things. Pay your taxes, send people to, to be in the military, worship the emperor outside of that they knew that their culture was so strong that it would slowly but surely invade you but they would let you do anything else i see you jan what they could not put up with 
was somebody who said, no, we won't live by your values. Yes, ma'am, Jim. Specifically in this case, it's the phrase that we, we as Christians stole and we used with Jesus. To worship Jesus, uh, Caesar was to say, Caesar is Lord. It's a part of what's known as the emperor cult. You would uh, burn incense typically once a year. Uh, many uh, Roman citizens would carry around with them. something. Think of our driver's license, how we use as our, our ID. You would carry around with you a little piece of, uh, of papyrus or other, uh, other way of, of doing this that said that you had burned incense to Caesar on this date. It was a worship of, I am going to declare he's worthy. And what was meant by that was, he has control of me, both life and death. He has control of my possessions. He is what everything points towards. And that's why early Christians, they would pay their taxes. They were, would reluctantly support the military. Christian, early Christians were pacifists. Uh, they would, would reluctantly put up with certain things in the culture. But what they could not put up with is saying, Caesar ultimately has control of my life. It, it is. Um, as far as the ancient Near Eastern, Eastern was concerned, there was not a secular and a sacred. Caesar was a god as far as they were concerned. He was the head of the state, and as the head of, a state, uh, of the state, he was a god. Think of it. We have Emperor Augustus, the august one. Literally, he was deified. We have a term for that. Uh, if you... Um, Oh, my word, my mind just went blank. In the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, you have the apotheosis of, uh, apotheosis of Washington. The apotheosis is the becoming of a god, becoming a god. When you became Caesar, you were apotheized. I don't know what the, the verb sense there would be, but you would experience an apotheosis. You would become a god, which is why Augustus was referred to as the son of God. That term should sound a little familiar because early Christians said, he's not the son of God, Jesus is the son of God. So we think of, oh, the president is not a god. There was no separation between faith and, and state at that point. You're welcome. The other slide I skipped was talking about the past two weeks, what we've talked about. Would you go? Actually, I think I can go to that. Let's, let's try it. There we go. So this is what we talked about the past two weeks. John 11, uh, 1 through 16, the summary of that basically is, is that Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come and do something on their time, and he didn't. He waited. If you read that, uh, that uh, portion, it literally says that uh, Jesus knew that Lazarus was dying and he chose to stay. He was probably about a half day's journey away from, uh, from, uh, from them and instead he stayed there for two days and, and uh, Lazarus died in the process. Jesus responded in his own time rather than the time of other people. And, and then the next time, uh, or last week, we talked about 11, 17 through 37 and Mary and Martha said, you could have changed things in the past, you still can change things in the future. And Jesus' response is, let's deal with right now. Both of those are situations where we're used to dealing with one thing. We, we expect people to respond now. We expect our God to respond now. And we have to get used to the fact that He may have a different agenda than us. We expect Him to make things better in the past or in the future. We have to get used to the fact He may want to do things with us now. Jesus disrupts our way of life and gives us a different way of life. 
that's just as troublesome now as it was back then. I'm going to use Jason and Lindsay without their permission of, of an example of this, but I know they won't mind. Jasper's a real blessing. Jasper's a real disruption. You guys opened your hearts up to be hurt. That's not the way of the world. We look at people and say they're nice. But the way of the world is to say to protect yourself. The way of Jesus is a call to take care of the least of these, to value the marginalized, to lift up things that are the opposite of the culture around us. And that almost always means pain. The Jewish leadership was right. Jesus was going to destroy the known world then. He was going to mess everything up. But I, I believe that he was, and I believe that he still does, give us a life that is better. We have story after story of the early Christians dying for their faith and not dying in horror, but dying in joy. Nero supposedly used Christians as torches to light his garden. And tradition says that they sang as they burned because Jesus flipped the script. He made it entirely different. So before I end, does anybody have anything to add? I'm going to see if my clicker works. Yeah, Terrence. A lot of our, 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 our Christian words are saying, no, they say it's this, it's wrong. Do you know what that, that act was usually called? In the Greek, it's eongalion. That translates as evangelism now, if you've ever heard evangelism. Evangelism is the sharing of the good news. The, for lack of a better word, the town crier would go, uh, good news, we have a new emperor, it is the spreading of the good news. And the Christian church said, that's not the good news because that just leads to slavery for you. That's not the good news because it just leads to values that are wrong. Jesus is the good news. Over and over again, you will see where er the early Christian church and Jesus took the wording of power of that time and flipped it and said, that's not the right way. This is the right way. So yes, that's very much true. Anybody else? Okay. You don't flip the script, in my opinion, by big things. You flip the script by small things. That's why I brought up the household codes. It's really easy for us to hear, Jesus wants you to go and flip the world upside down. And we think big, monstrous things. But the reality is, 
he flipped the script by suddenly slaves being treated as human. And how do you treat somebody as human? Small things. You eat with them. You call them brother and sister. You respect their opinion. He flipped the script because women were now valued. Okay, that's a big deal. The first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Their voice, your voice, would not have been, uh, been allowed at that time, would not have been respected. The, the first witnesses of, of uh, the birth are shepherds. They would not have been al- allowed to testify. Jesus literally takes the script and flips it. Lots of small acts. We read those as big acts now, but the reality is it's literally just somebody saying, no, I want to hear what that person says. We take it and make it a big thing. It's people of all different status eating together at the same table. That's what Rome considered revolutionary. It seems like a small thing, but the reality is we still consider it revolutionary now. Think of the civil rights movement. The biggest acts were people saying, I can eat at that counter and other people going and eating at that counter with them. I'm not asking you to do big acts in the sense of monstrous movie acts. I'm asking you to do small acts that are going to take great acts of faith. To eat with the unwanted. To give in a way that hurts you because you believe in what's going on. Those small acts are what flip the world over, and it makes sense because we're used to a world where people think the big acts are what flip things, and if we're saying the world's going to be upside down, then why wouldn't the method be different too? It was a babe that God came to the world through. That's flipped. Everybody expected him to come in a big way. Instead, he comes as someone who needs to have his diapers changed. Go and do that. Do the small acts that garden in such a way that the fruits of the Spirit blow up. And that changes the world because that's the way of Christ. Would you join with me in a little act of formation? our closing prayer. And hopefully that's going to record because I would rather hear your voices. It's over there. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him As you go, may you experience his face, his peace, his joy, and his hope. Have a wonderful week. Do lots of small things with great love and with different values. Bye.